Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Keyboard Kimura Podcast. I told you on Sunday that I was probably going to do more pods this week because they're A, easier, B, more enjoyable, and C, allow me to bring on guests. We sat down with Sean Sheehan earlier in the week, and today I'm happy to be joined by my friend, the New York Post's Scott Fontana. Scott, thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate you jumping on in the, in the early morning out there on, on the East Coast. Uh, it's a lot earlier for you, sir. You're on the West Coast, so uh, <laughs> I'm not really much of a hero here. But thank you very much for having me on and for that nice intro, uh, Spencer. Yeah, this is this is still regular time of day for me. That's the thing. I've I've somehow, despite getting older, become a morning person. It drives my wife insane, but it actually is when I get my best work done. Um, as I mentioned, Scott writes for the New York Post. He does a phenomenal piece ahead of events, interviews with fighters called the Post-Fight Q&A that you should definitely check out. And part of the reason, and I think I mentioned it in the podcast with Sean, the reason I wanted to have Scott on today is because he and Dan Urban are the hosts of a show called The Couchside Judges. And I will let you get into the full details of what you gentlemen do. Yes. Yeah, so The Couchside Judges is a podcast that uh, my buddy Dan and I started a couple years ago. Uh, we, we launched right around like the beginning of the pandemic. It was like right before. So what our goal was at the time, I'll take you into what we, what our goal was at the time and kind of what it evolved into. So our goal at the time was to examine judging and, you know, trying to spotlight on, you know, when it was done right and maybe when it was done wrong, right? Because when we got into this, we had some preconceived notions that I think a lot of people share. And that was that, you know, maybe the judges aren't getting it right sometimes, right? So we would look at every single – we looked at just about every single round at the beginning. We moved away from that. And we've also moved away from, also moved away from the idea that judges are really getting it wrong all the time because we've had several conversations over the years uh, with working officials, some for our show, some in private – and they've helped uh, give us a better understanding of the way judges actually apply the scoring criteria. Um, so now what we do is every single event at UFC, uh, and occasionally Bellator or PFL, uh, Dan is much less willing to do <laughs> Bellator and stuff. He's got access to grind with Bellator. Um, but I'll let him to speak to that another day. Uh, but we'll look at every UFC event, and we'll look at every time the judges were split on a round. So... Let's say they had, you know, two judges had a 10-9, one judge had a 10-8. Dan and I will dive in, and we will look at that round, and we'll say, okay, why might this have been scored a 10-9 or a 10-8? And then we look at how that can be applied maybe to the wording of the criteria. We'll say, well, does this fit? What might be the score we would give that maybe me personally would consider to be the better score to give? But typically speaking, we're really just looking at does it fit the mold of the criteria? Is it, is it something that could be a, a defensible score? That's what we're really looking to find out. So as someone who has been on the show, I'm not just saying it because I have been on the show. What you guys do and what these guys do, dear audience, is invaluable. It is exactly what a lot of people need to sit down and hear. Because as Scott just said, it's not looking at the rounds from a standpoint of here's how I would score it, this is how I think it should be scored. It's here's the criteria, the three and a half pages that Sean and I talked about a bunch on Tuesday, that tells you how to score rounds, 
and here's how they got there and here's maybe how we would get there and that's to me a huge part of this conversation because if you see in the wake of last weekend with Holly Holm and Ketlin Vieira and to a lesser extent Eric Anders and Jun Young Park there's a lot of well but I think that's all well and good listen I'm very much an opinion guy but it doesn't matter when there's actual rules and criteria that have to be met in order to that dictate how this stuff is done and so before we get into this I cannot recommend enough that you listen to the podcast subscribe to the podcast it will greatly increase your understanding of why these different rounds these rounds where we have these controversies controversies isn't even the right word but where we have these disagreements and we have these uncertainties it will clarify for you how judges get there what the criteria states it will make you better at scoring these fights at home so please check them out they are on twitter they are are on all of your podcast platforms follow them subscribe listen to some episodes the boys know what they're talking about absolutely apple spotify youtube um and and actually i should point out special the episode that you were on where you actually broke down the rounds with us that was one of our most popular episodes, and I think it, I think the large reason uh, was probably you. But then, secondly, it was the uh, that was the fight where, or that was the event where it was Corey Sanhagen against T.J. Dillashaw, which obviously was a very uh, hotly debated, uh, scored fight. And that also was the same event of Miranda Maverick and um, Macy Barber, which. I mean, even now, I'll, I'll ask people, like, hey, w- you know, when do you think a robbery really happened? Because I say, in the UFC level, we haven't had a robbery since Diego Sanchez got the win over Ross Pearson. We're talking about many years ago, before the even criteria was revised, right? Right. Uh, but those two fights were pointed out to me recently, and I'm like, huh, they were on the same show. <laughs> so if you want to, go listen to episode, I want to say it was 140, uh, and check that out. So I went back and... And was listening a little bit myself. I'm like, oh, that was the Spencer one. That was great. <laughs> well, I appreciate the compliment. I think it has more to do with the fact that those fights were very important and very prominent. Not me coming on the show and and waxing philosophical about my ideas about judging and things like that. But we we will get it. I as I said, thank you for the compliment. Mm. We will get into this because, as I said to you in in sort of setting this up, and as I've said now setting this up. I kind of want to just talk about judging on the whole and and you seem to me to be one of the better resources I can reach out to outside of going to someone at at an athletic commission that probably won't be as honest about their officials. And so you are the best person I can come to. On the whole, to me, as someone that is taking a judging course and passed a judging course and watches literally every UFC event every weekend or on delay on Sunday morning if I have stuff going Mm -hmm. on on Saturday. It doesn't feel to me like judging is anywhere near as bad as it gets made out to be on a week-to-week basis. It feels like every split decision lately or every close fight that has some gravity to it in terms of the names or maybe where they're at in the division is starting to become this reason for grand debate and calls for overhaul. And first and foremost, what's your thought on kind of the overall state of judging right now and, and where it's at in terms of getting it right and and 
the application, as you said earlier, of the scoring criteria to determine these results. Well, you know, getting it right, obviously, there's a couple ways that you can kind of measure that, right? I think number one, and really this is kind of that ends justifies the means kind of measurement is did the right person get the victory? And I would say, once again, we haven't had a UFC uh, level robbery. Was, you know, to borrow the time, I don't really like the term, but you all know what I mean if I say it, so I'm going to use it. Um, I don't think we've had such a robbery at the UFC level in what, what we're going on now. It's eight years. Eight years of every time the right person uh, fought and most definitely deserved the victory, unequivocally can't make the argument either way, they won. We've had a lot of fights where there are close fights, close rounds, very close rounds that maybe you watch from one perspective and you thought somebody was more successful. Um, then we've had fights where, just like this last weekend, where some people maybe misunderstand what you're really supposed to be valuing. Uh, and that is where it's really just kind of up for debate, right? It's it's You're just talking about kind of perspectives on the same thing, and it can still fit within the criteria, then it doesn't really matter. Ultimately, the system works, you know? Split decisions, even if we have weird scorecards in the minority, that's the minority. doesn't matter. We've had, over the last two years that Dan and I have been doing the show, we've only had a handful of rounds, even at the UFC level, out of, you know, I would say, oh gosh, we're talking about close to 4,000 rounds, somewhere around 4,000 rounds or something like that scored in the last two years we've been doing the show. And none of them are, well, not one of them, very few of them are such a round where we're like, yeah, this doesn't really make sense. And for the most part, those rounds are coming from when the UFC visits other territories than Vegas, such as Houston, Texas in particular, sometimes Florida. <laughs> uh, those are where we've seen kind of the worst uh, scorecards mostly coming out of. And that's the thing that kind of drives me nuts is when people say, oh, yeah, we need new judges in there. We got a new blood. These judges are terrible. Fire judges who, you know, put out bad scorecards, that kind of thing. It's like, okay, where are you drawing those replacement level judges from? Is there some sort of farm that, <laughs> you know, we're, we're growing them out there? Is there is there a plethora of people out there who just cannot wait to take low-level jobs <laughs> for thankless uh Thankless situation here. On weekends to get criticized on, on exactly. the internet by faceless strangers over and over and over again. This is everybody's second. I mean, it's it's a job, right? But it's it's their second source of income. Everybody who's judging at the UFC level has a primary job. They have to balance that job with trying to be a judge, flying to Vegas, flying to Florida, flying to Texas, flying all over the place in the country, right? And who wants to really be able to do that? There are a lot of judges who they have families and sometimes they're like, yeah, I'm not taking this assignment because I want to spend time with my family. Or maybe I'm taking some time off because I want to spend time with my family or I can't do consecutive weekends. It's it's not a full-time gig. It doesn't have full-time pay associated <laughs> right. to it. It's not it's it's a, you know, it's a per event gig and ultimately you have to work as often as Sal D'Amato who is far and away the, the most active judge. Most active judge. The numbers that I track are not even very close with regard to that. So 
and I, and he even has a, a a full-time job if i understand correctly um everybody has to has to make ends meet somewhere else so there's a couple things in there that i really want to touch on first and foremost being that generally speaking for the most part the right person is winning these fights and i agree with you absolutely i don't i the, the benchmark you've put out as the last robbery is the same one I used, the Ross Pearson-Diego Sanchez fight, which was terrible, which I know you, you tweeted about earlier this, this week saying, like, all these people that are calling for reforms and for judges to be held accountable, the two people that scored that fight for Diego Sanchez have, are, are nowhere to be seen. They are, that is correct. They have, they have evaporated. They were part of the snapping. They are no longer on this earth in terms of judging. They're alive. As far as I know, I don't know. <laughs> and I think the other part of that is, as, as you said, we see a lot of these outlier rounds and these true head scratching rounds. And one that jumps to mind immediately from this year is UFC 271, Casey O'Neill, Roxanne Modafari, where someone scored the fight for Roxanne Modafari. And if you go on MMADecisions.com, shameless plug, and look at that fight, it is a judge that is not one of our sort of core pool of officials that we hear from from week to week and so there has to be that little bit of understanding those little grains of salt when we're looking at these things and saying they can't get it right like inexperienced people are going to make mistakes and get it wrong far more than the the core pool of officials that we hear every like it's interesting to me because i think a lot of people are familiar with the names they hear prior to each main event and then have no idea about the fact that much like referees, a lot of preliminary card fights or some preliminary card fights are the opportunities where local officials, if there are some in the UFC is in or Bellator or whoever is in a different location than normal. That's when those, those officials are getting their opportunity to get some experience and gain some time scoring fights at the highest level. And that more than kind of our, our core fights and our core group is where we're actually seeing these outlier rounds and these rounds that are completely indefensible or these scores that are completely indefensible versus the core group of judges that we all know, that we all hear every weekend, the Sal D'Amato's, the Chris Lee's, the Derek Cleary, not clearly, Cleary, the Eric It's also Colons. Eric Cologne, yes, not Eric, Eric Colon. Cologne, not Eric Colon. Shout out to Eric Cologne. Um, it's where we, you know, yes, there's going to be instances where those judges have dissenting opinions or there's a dissenting round. But I think the other part of that, and, and you could probably speak to this as, as well as anybody, is that like close rounds happen. Close fights happen. Like it, it's not always going to be crystal clear who deserves a round. Many, many times over, it is. And it, it seems, I think both yourself and several other people this, this week have, have done the like, we're making a mountain out of a molehill here because the the actual evidence and the numbers which you collect and analyze and look at suggest that we are, as you said, getting it right most of the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, really, when you look at there, because like you said, I do track the numbers. I, for, for those who aren't familiar, I have just a massive spreadsheet uh, that I track all of these 
rounds in. Every every UFC round, every Bellator round that I can get my hands on. It's which a glorious spreadsheet for spreadsheet <laughs> Sensor has seen it. He has, he has been uh, privy to access to it. Um, Bellator, Bellator, of course, PFL in recent years as well. I track them all as best I can. And uh, just uh, let's let's just go with UFC here, but I'll tell you that mostly it's the same across the board. But with judges, the top judges, like the ones that you're kind of seeing most of the time, are roughly going to be in the majority out of three. So they saw a score. Someone else along them saw a score. They're going to be in the majority about 94 ish percent of the time 93 94 percent is what we're looking at they're almost always going to be in the majority right sometimes it happens they're out right there are a few judges who over the last let's say going back through you know it's like spring 27 2019 excuse me is, is how i have full complete ufc data for you go all the way back that far so we're talking about three years now and the judges who are the most consistent, the most in line with one another, are typically guys like Sal D'Amato, like Mike Bell, like Junichiro Camillo. Those are probably the three working in North America who are the most in line and have worked the most. Um, I should also shout out Ron McCarthy, uh, whose father, Big John McCarthy, of course, everybody knows, but he himself has completely um, formed an identity as a terrific fantastic young judge in this sport um, with, <laughs> with of course, like, you know, like we could say, he's got a good pedigree there in, in, in a good resource in his father uh, who helped build all of this. I would say he's actually a, a much better, uh, he has a much better understanding of modern yes. MMA judging <laughs> than Big John does because a lot of Big John's things that he says tend to be uh, things that get parroted from years ago before some of the the criterias were changed and things like that it's 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 kind of unusual to see but you know really when when you think about it what was big john doing most of the time he was refereeing i think he's probably beyond reproach when it comes to refereeing but judging i i i speak to privately other resources that i think are much more knowledgeable so you mentioned there sort of that that generational let's call it a generational shift between the McCarthy's father and son <laughs> and, and it's actually a thing that has come up to me in my opinion a lot this week is that you hear and you see sort of these coaches these fighters these people that have this idea of the way the scoring used to be and versus how it is now and well it used to be that that this would win rounds and this was sort of their understanding if you can very quickly, not to get into the full details of it, run through for people when there was a shift and and how it's different versus kind of, and I'm doing air quotes here that no one can see, the old ways of scoring fights. So the shift officially happened. The document was officially um, voted on and approved in August 2016. But my understanding is this was something that, that what whatever they were starting to implement, it was kind of being at least kind of looked at for just a little bit before that, just because they, they were seeing this was the way to go, I guess. It didn't become a really official thing that was used worldwide and among every commission until the beginning of 2017. That's when, you know, places like Britain and, and all these other places throughout the world were also following suit 
and utilizing this new criteria, this, this revised criteria, right? And this criteria was largely focused on trying to, um, I guess, put an emphasis on, on damage, on, you know, f working to end the fight, evaluating what the most significant action was that was successful in order to try and make the fight end. So that was what was placed, uh, you know, a as the primary, essentially, evaluator there. Um, I'm less familiar with the wording of what the criteria had been before, but I think it was there was a lot more, uh, let's say... Uh, ambiguity. Ambiguity, thank you. That's a good word for it. Uh, because especially it wasn't entirely clear in the way it was worded that, okay, you have effective striking and grappling. You have aggression and you have... Octagon, cage, control, depending on where you are. It's all a cage, right? Um, but if you if you have those three, you're really only supposed to, especially now, look at effective striking and grappling. The other two are only there as tiebreakers. And I think that's something that is – you know, you mentioned you know, maybe that the, the criteria is like pretty much fine as it is. I would actually push back just a little bit. Because there are little ways that I've, you know, I've looked at this a lot. And one thing that I would really love to see in the criteria get changed, modified, updated, clarified, is the idea that control is that tertiary criteria, right? Because when we talk about control in mixed martial arts, when there's a commentator talking about it, when we're sitting at home talking about, oh, he controlled the guy, right? What we mean is that they were in control of the grappling. They were essentially being the more effective grappler is what we're talking about when we're talking about controlled or control time. They were on top. They were, you know, le you know, they were in control of the clinch position, that kind of thing. But octagon control or cage control in terms of the grappling is just a little different. It's, it's not exactly that. So I feel like we need to move away from using that word entirely in the criteria, change to something else that means something similar, but it's a different word so that when, you know, John Anik does the spiel at the beginning and he says, you know, they, they evaluate first by effective striking and grappling, then aggression, and then cage control, octagon control, you're not right. mistaking what type of control it right. is because people will sit at home and they'll say, oh, control time. That's, that's why it's got to win. It's like, well, it's not really that. That's kind of control time is empty in and of itself. You need to have fight-ending actions, and that's where the effective striking and grappling comes in, and that's first. And part of that, and I don't want to turn this into a discussion of commentary and, and commentators, but part of that, to me, often comes down to the way those things are communicated by the people we hear on the broadcasts. And when the focus is often put on, well, they've had this amount of control time, or things like, as we hear still far too often... That takedown here late in the round probably seals it for them or steals it for them. It sort of reinforces some of those old, old, old ways of thinking, some of the old ways of scoring fights, the old ways we viewed fights, and speaks to things that aren't actually part of the criteria and, and don't necessarily fall into what the judges are actually looking for. And so to me, it feels like a big part of this, as you said, I, I love the idea of clarifying control and control time so that we have a better differentiation between the two so that there isn't that confusion. 
but it mostly comes down to how this is being presented and it's it's education and it's funny to me that you know we've seen so many people come out and say well what are these how do these these judges don't know what they're talking about these judges don't know what it feels like to be in a fight xyz whatever the argument is and some of them do and some of some of them absolutely do we also see lots of calls for fighters should be judges and as i said with sean that is a terrible idea because right now a lot of fighters don't actually know the criteria Eric Cologne, though, has fought. Eric Cologne has fought. I don't think he most people know that. Jiu-Jitsu gym. He is, like, this is the thing. I know Dominic Cruz was on the MMA Hour on Wednesday, went on one of these rants about these guys don't know, and then Mike Mazzula of the um, commission out there in Connecticut, I believe, does a lot of Mohegan. work. Mohegan. The Mohegan Tribe Commission. Um, does a lot of work with Bellator. Came out kind of right away with Nolan King on, on MMA Junkie and, and read off the credentials of some of these judges. Um, to me, it's, it is education, but it's education the other way. I'm very happy to hear that Daniel Cormier and, D, and Dominic Cruz and, and some of these broadcasters are going to get some greater education because that is, I mean, it was the key for me years ago when I sat down and did John McCarthy's command course. It's been such a vital thing to continue to work at over these last, over this last decade now of as you guys do as sean does speaking with officials speaking with judges going back and reviewing fights and watching them over again and trying to figure out how i got there and and sean and i talked about it on tuesday the best thing and i think i tweeted about it as well at some point this week the best thing to me you can do if you really do want to understand this stuff tape a ufc event put it on mute watch it back and then look at the scorecards and figure out yours versus theirs, how they got there, and maybe where you missed. Because in all likelihood, you are the one that got it wrong, not the people that do this every weekend. I would actually, I would amend that a little bit, sir. Because if, let's say, for example, like me, I don't speak uh, Espanol. I don't speak Spanish. What I like to do is I will switch over to the Spanish language commentary there you go. so that I can listen to the fight and hear maybe some of the sounds that are going on, but I also am not understanding what the commentary Look is you saying. Have even better ideas. <laughs> even better ideas. I greatly appreciate it. So one of the other things that, that I wanted to touch on that I did not, waters that I did not dare wade into with Sean Tishian on Tuesday was open scoring because that seems to be calling it the cause celeb right now probably sounds like me being an asshole and and underplaying it a little bit but it's it's the popular counter to all of this right right now is these fighters need to know where they stand this is how we fix bad judging all of those things so first and foremost as somebody who i would say is an expert in this field can you explain how open scoring does nothing to fix, air quotes again, bad judging? Sure. So really, when we're talking about open scoring, what we're really trying to get to the heart of, and, and the people who have implemented this uh, in different commissions, uh, which is very few of them, but we, we have it in Kansas and we have it in Colorado now. And in Kansas, the commissioner there, Adam Rohrbach, who was a guest on our show a couple years ago and helped explain how it works, is the thinking is that really you just want to give the fighters the tools to know where they stand in the fight. It's not necessarily something that is going to 
fix judging because it it's not going to change necessarily for the better the way if uh, a judge is going to judge because their score is going to be put out there. If anything, you can even make the case that there are, are negative effects to that. I think Andy Foster probably more eloquently put out there what some of the dangers are with that than I did. So uh, if you missed that on the MMA Hour, I would seek that out. But it's really just about, like I said, giving the fighters the tools to know where they're at. So let's say, especially on a, on a, at a smaller show, maybe where you're getting you know, local, less experienced judges or something like that, you want to know what those judges saw. So if you're sitting at home, or not sitting at home, if you were in the cage and you say, okay, this looked like, a, uh, like our round, right? But then two out of the three judges saw it the other way. You say, well, at least now I know, okay, now this is where we stand. We have to change our tactics. Like we thought, we think we're winning. We don't think we have to go crazy with it. Let's, let's push pace more. Let's try and get a finish, that kind of thing. You allow the fighters to know where they stand, the corners where they stand, that kind of thing. Uh, without that, you could be coasting to what you think is a decision, and then you end up losing because you lost the first two rounds. Like what are you supposed to do with that? The fighters really are the ones who are putting themselves out there more than us. They're the ones who are absorbing the damage. The, they're putting themselves on the line for our entertainment, for their families, for all these, these things. And I, I feel like the decent thing is just to make them more aware of where they stand in the fight so they can ostensibly make more money. You know, if, if you've got, <laughs> you got flat fee like Dominic Cruz mentioned in his in his rant against terrible uh, <laughs> judging and how they need to fix it and somehow made a really amazing point, uh, that is less of a problem. But nonetheless, fighters really ought to be able to try and chase a victory in the way that the judges are perceiving it to be at that night. So you really want to make sure they know where they stand. That's how I feel about it anyway. Yeah, and so, so I don't ever have any problem with, with fighters knowing exactly where they stand. You want to do it. Great. I don't think it changes judging. I th I think there are some some potential negatives that come with it. Sure. But the thing I did say to Sean on on Tuesday, and just have been thinking about a lot since since this weekend, especially that Holly Holm fight or the Ketlin Vieira fight, is that if at any point in that fight one of those corners felt that they were one of those sides felt that they were up so far that it, it wasn't in question or that they had won so clearly that it wasn't in question, that it feels a little bit misguided. Like, it always baffles me when you go back and look, coaches, I will, I will preface this by saying this, coaches know their fighters far more than I do. And so they know if their, their charge needs to hear some positive about they won the round or some negative about they they lost the round, whatever the case may be. But if you go back to that corner and it's a close round and, and your cornerman says, ah, that's us and we're up and is constantly telling you you're up when it's a close round, that seems kind of like misguided to me. Just go out there. Like Holly Holm should have been fighting with more urgency to me, regardless of what the actual scores were. And if that isn't the message, if that isn't the messaging then yes, knowing that the judges have it a way that is different to what Mike Winklejohn is telling her maybe changes some things. But the other part of that is that these men and women have been training and, and game planning for those specific fights and their overall fighting style for years on end. It is very, very difficult to suddenly just shift that and adopt something else going forward. And so this idea to me that them knowing is going to create 
greater change is maybe not as fleshed out as as people think it is. I would say two things come to mind, and I hope I remember both of them. I've got a terrible memory in short-term terms, but um, one thing that stands out with me is that, okay, if you know that you lost that round, at the very least, you, you just, you're going to, even if you're going with a certain game plan, that you can at least change it up, hopefully, to a degree. Like, you, you make small adjustments in the fight. You can't change who you are as a fighter. But if Holly knows that she's, you know, lost two out of those three rounds, maybe they change it. Maybe they don't. Another thing that really bothers me about this whole, this fight and the fallout from it is all the things that I keep seeing from that particular camp being spoken about with this fight is like you know if you look at past fights this is this is what wins your rounds and things like this is how you win fights it's like well that's not really been the case like i said for six years now since they since they went and changed the criteria there's a lot of evidence and we look at it every week on our show that damage is king it's not leaning up against your your opponent and trying to you know prevent anti-offense i guess in that sense that's not that's not what's winning fights anymore. If it's a close enough round and Ketlin Vieira is the one who's landing the more damaging strikes from distance, and, and even that is still a debatable thing in, in this fight, I think in this particular round three of that fight, because there there's some there's some shots that Holly's landing. Holly Holm is landing some, some strikes in there as well. So once you get down to that, if it's close enough, a judge who's at one perspective or another might see or miss uh, a strike that another didn't which is why we have the three judges to begin with, right? So I, I just don't, I don't understand why they don't seem to grasp that this is the way it, it's scored now. And it speaks to me as it, it almost manifests as not keeping up with the sport. And, and I think that's unfortunate for the fighter. That is not going to um, change until the coaches and all of them really start to, I would suggest, Talk to other judges. Talk to officials. Try to understand. Like, ask, hey, what is it you're looking for? Like, well, how? What can I do to put my fighter in a position to succeed? I think every coach should be reaching out to, especially the top level judges, experienced judges who are even working now, and to say, listen, what is what is it you're looking for? You don't have to tell me why you scored this particular fight that way, but like, what what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to tell my fighter to do in order to get the win? And that to me is, as we've sort of touched on here, and, and I'll kind of wrap it up here and, and let you get out of here and not keep it too long, that to me all comes down to education. Whether it's coaches, whether it's broadcasters, whether it's fighters themselves, the information is out there. Whether it's fans at home, the information is out there. Go and read the criteria. And if you have access to the people that can, as Scott just said, answer your questions, seek them out. It will clear up a lot of this stuff. It will make you understand better. As I said, I, I think you are one of the foremost experts I could have brought in on this. I greatly appreciate you coming in. Before I let you go, just plug your stuff, the show, everything, and, and thank you again. Yeah, absolutely, Spencer. So you can find my written content for the New York Post uh, on nypost.com slash sports if you want to get a little more specific. Um that's, that's where all my stuff goes. Like like Spencer said, I have the post-fight interview Q&A every week. I like to do other features as well balanced in there. They kind of heat up as pay-per-views come along and it's bigger shows and that kind of thing. But um, you can also read the most recent one of those that I did with uh, uh, Erin uh, Blanchfield, who is apparently – she went to high school in the same town that I live in right now. 
Didn't know that when I talked to her. <laughs> that was kind of funny. Um, and then my podcast, of course, that I do with Dan Urban is The Couchside Judges. We're on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, uh, pretty much wherever you can get a podcast. You can listen to us. There's 180-some-odd episodes. But, you know, I would say probably just keep up with the latest. But you can also go back and find some interviews we've done with the likes of Ben Cartledge, uh, judge in England, uh, referees Rob Hines and Kevin McDonald, who are among the judges and referees who train other judges and referees. Um, Adam Rohrbach, like I said. So hopefully you can find something of interest there. And like I said, man, I, I greatly appreciate you doing it this morning. Folks, thank you for listening. Thank you as always for coming here and, and checking this out. I hope these two podcasts have been informative, entertaining, giving you something to think about, something to explore, something to consider going forward as we continue to talk about judging and scoring and things like that. Scott will be back at some point going forward because this issue isn't going away. I will be back at some point because this is my platform and, and I like doing these things. But thank you for coming. Thank you for checking us out. Most importantly, the rest of this week, please take care of yourselves. Hug your loved ones. Know that you are loved. Be good to one another. And we'll talk to you again soon.